Welcome back to our Total Sense Bite Size episodes. I'm Tom Henske, and I'm here to help parents teach their kids about money. My guest today was introduced by Mark Gold from Westport, Connecticut, where Total Sense is headquartered. So that's really ironic. Today we have with us Sheila Bear, uh, and it's not every day that I get to interview a difference maker like Sheila. She was twice, not once, twice named Forbes magazine as the second most powerful woman in the world. She is perhaps best known as being the chair of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation from 2006 to 2011, where you'll remember that she steered that agency through the worst financial crisis at the time since the Great Depression. She's made great efforts to protect bank depositors and homeowners during crisis. And for that, she actually received the Kennedy Library's Profiles in Courage Award. I love that Time Magazine calls her the little guy's protector in chief. She's a former finance professor and college president where she's been nationally recognized for her initiatives to make college more affordable. She's the author of New York Times bestseller, Bull by the Horns. Wow, that's really appropriate timing for everything that's going on in the world. Uh, and the reason that I wanted to talk to her was she's also the author of Albert Whitman's Money Tales, which is a series for young people and financial literacy books for kids. Welcome, Sheila. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. Happy to be here. Well, we've got a lot to talk about and not a lot of time to talk about it. So I'm just going to hop right in. So can you share with us what it was like being chair of the FDIC during that time of financial crisis? Yeah. Well, it was busy, obviously. <laughs> we, uh, you know, uh, you get into a stress situation like that and uh, you just have to take it as it comes and uh, not let yourself get overwhelmed. Um, I was fortunate that I came to the FDIC in the summer of 2006, uh, right before the crisis hit, and uh, about eight or nine months before we really started seeing problems. And I was fortunate that our the FDIC uh, examiners and economists uh, had been looking at the situation for a while and were very concerned about the housing market and how lending standards had deteriorated and the, the low quality of so many mortgage loans uh, that had been made. Uh, so we were we were ahead of the curve, and um, I quickly beefed up. The, the FDIC had gone through some really brutal downsizing, so I started staffing up again. We increased deposit insurance premiums to get more money in our deposit insurance fund that had become depleted, and so we did have a little bit of time to prepare. So then, when when things hit, uh, we were we were more ready for it, uh, but it was still difficult. And, uh, you know, the, the problem is being being ahead of the curve sometimes. I'm sure your listeners will relate to that. Being ahead of the curve sometimes, you can have, uh, you can have a, very, uh, a lot of difficulty convincing others that we've got a real problem. Uh, you know, so nine months later, I was like, oh, yeah. In March of 2007, the housing market was correcting. We were starting to see the, uh, the first problems. And, of course, it blew, blew up into a full, uh, full-fledged crisis in 2008. But... Uh, you know, I had a great team, uh, but the FDIC staff were just so wonderful, so much esprit de corps, so much dedication to the public, the people that use banks, not the banks themselves. You know, I like banks and all, but really your, your job as a, as, a, as a government servant is to protect the public, the people that use the banks. And uh, I think our affinity for, you know, depositors, those then, less than 100,000, 250,000 now is the cap. But it just put us more in touch with the main street needs, and I, I think that that served us well uh, throughout the crisis. And we advocate, we did advocate for the little guy frequently. I, I love that uh, that time uh, 
uh, caption that they they gave me in one of the profiles they did of me. But uh, yeah, it was. It, it, I, some people say we have a good crisis. I don't think anybody had a good crisis, but we we weathered it well. We played a key role in stabilizing the system and protecting families, and I feel very good about that. So now take me back, you know, where this podcast is for parents and grandparents who want right. to learn about uh, how to teach their kids about money. So talk about the path that you took uh, professionally that then led you to be such a champion of financial literacy. Oh, boy. So I, I think I became um, interested in it uh, well, as a parent. Uh, so I, I was the assistant secretary for financial, for financial institutions at the U.S. Department of Treasury back in uh, 2001 and 2002. And uh, I started an office of financial education there, which they still have and is, is, is grown into something much pretty significant. I think they do a lot of good work. And, uh, but I, you know, so I was interested as a, as a government official and policymaker and one with oversight of financial regulation. We didn't regulate, but we did oversee policy uh, that applied to financial regulation. Yeah, I was, I was worried about, um, how uh, the lack of financial education really let uh, people fall prey to bad, you know, even legal products that were just bad, you know, wealth stripping, uh, you know, high subprime loans, <laughs> you know, payday loans. I mean, you know, or just credit, misuse of credit cards, uh, carrying balances, overdrafting your checking account, so many things that people do that cost them a lot of money. And, um, there, you know, so, and we tend to overcomplicate things. I think in finance, a lot of jargon and complex instruments. When really the risk boiled down to some pretty basic stuff. And I thought, you know, we should. I should try to present this uh, material, this just this ba- these basic principles, uh, morals, if you will, uh, into children's books because I think kids will get it at an early age. And I knew from, you know, reading books to my own kids. My husband and I had a nightly ritual of reading picture books to our kids. The kids would read the books over and over and over again. I'm sure any parent or grandparent out there, their you know their child's got a favorite book. They'll probably read it 50 times, and but it, it, that's good because it sinks in and it sticks with them. And uh, I, I do think picture books, children's literature, has a profound impact on culture. And um, and and we owe it to children to to start giving them good base knowledge about how to manage life. Uh, especially around money at an early age. So um, that's kind of, uh, you know, professionally, I was interested in financial education. And as a parent, I saw what I thought was a pretty powerful influence for picture books. And so that's, I wrote my first two um, back then. Um, and uh, Rock, Rock and the Saving Shock is is uh, over 20 years old now. And uh, I love it. I have, you know, young adults coming up to me now and saying they remember my book, you know, and just the basic, you know, Save, don't spend all your money. That stuck with them. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's also got compounding interest, which was for the last several years has been hard to teach, at least for a bank account. But now we're seeing some real interest rates, uh, thank goodness, on on uh, bank savings and, and safe assets like treasuries. So so that those are lessons about the power of compounding when you save are, are becoming more relevant now, too. Okay, so you've got to take me through the kids' books one by one yeah. and just tell okay. me a little about all each right. of them. Okay. So, uh, so the first is Rock, Rock, and the Saving Shock. That was about um, two brothers. Uh, one's a saver and one's a spender. And uh, the grandpa offers them a savings plan. Actually, grandparents, this book is sold very well. Uh, and uh, grandparents in particular like this book. So grandpa has a savings plan. They do some chores every week and they'll get a dollar. And every dollar they save, he's going to double it the next week. But if they spend it, they don't get the doubling. They just get another dollar. 
So of course, one one uh, kid, <laughs> one kid saves and one kid spends. At the end, the the, the child who saves has got you know five hundred twelve dollars of money because it's been you know over ten weeks has been comp is compounding, doubling every week, and the other one just has a bunch of junky toys. So it's it's a lesson about you know not buying junky stuff. Uh, I wrote it back when dollar stores were really taking off, and it just the, the, and I could see my own kids you know being enticed by this uh, the this consumerism and the cheap toys, shiny toys that fall apart in a week. So it was a bit of a riff on that too. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's about saving and, and spending thoughtfully. So the, so at the end of the savings plan, uh, the, the child that saves did, did spend money thoughtfully on, you know, a, a present for grandpa, a telescope for himself. Then he put a lot of it in the bank and a joint account with his brother. <laughs> so it had a happy ending. And, and then uh, the next one was a, Isabel's car wash. That's actually about uh it, 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 at a very basic level about equity investing. So Isabel wants to start a car wash to buy a doll, to raise money to buy a doll. And so she finds, she figures out she needs money for chamois and soap, uh, et cetera, to start her car wash. So she gets a dollar from a bunch of her friends and they uh, give her enough money to start her car wash. But she's a very good uh, entrepreneur. She warns them in advance. She can't guarantee She's going to make money, right? If she does make money, she's going to share the profits, but she can't guarantee it. So they say, okay, well, we'll take a leap of faith. And, uh, and sure enough, she is successful and pays a nice healthy dividend um, to her friends and still has enough to, uh, to, uh, to buy the, the doll that she wants. And uh, both these books, as well as the ones I've written more recently, have back matter, nonfiction back matter that I think adults find very useful too. And those are things uh, adults can, can review with their children or teachers. Some of these books are used in classrooms can, can, uh, can use. Um, so yeah, those are the first two. And then uh, you want to keep going or. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, on. you know what, what I do, I want to hear about the third, what's the age range that you usually find so your it's best. It's a grade school. I think, uh, you know, Isabel, probably a kindergarten, even a four-year-old uh, could read. The, the other ones are more uh, second, third, fourth, fifth grade. I think that's really the sweet spot. I've actually done readings in middle school. I mean, they're funny books. Uh, they, they, they use rhyming text. So I think, you know, I, you know, adults read them. Sometimes I think we should just advertise them for all ages, but uh, they're, they're really written for uh, second through fifth grade. Really, that's that's the sweet spot. Well, you get a laugh because after we met, you know, I went out and got your books right away. And uh, I even posted about it on social media. So the people who are listening to this, you might remember, this was almost like going on a year ago, which is crazy to me. Uh, and But when I bought them, Sheila, I read them to my, uh, at the time, she was 15 years old daughter, 15 year old right. daughter. And she uh, she's like, that's really cool. That's really cute. So it's yeah. interesting that it's meant for a younger audience, but even a high school child yeah. got a lot yeah. of benefit out of it and thought it was huh. like, oh, wow, it was cute. I like the story. Yeah. Yeah, good. That, that makes me feel good. I, yeah, and, that, I, and that's been my experience that the older children, uh, young adults like them as well. I, I love wordplay. I love rhyming text and doing twists on words and phrases. And I try to infuse a lot of humor, humor in the book. So I, I don't want it to be dry. I don't want it to be didactic, no finger wagging so much. There's a lot of good financial literacy content out there, but I think people who, who write this content need to, uh, you know, stay away from being too didactic or lecturing. Uh, you know, I, and I don't want, I don't, I want to teach kids how to protect themselves without them feeling guilty. I think that that's a trick with financial education, Look, you know, a lot of these products, even though they're legal, they're designed to get you to misuse them. I mean, a lot, you know, a lot of banks make a lot of money over overdraft protection. I mean, that's how they make their money. 
credit card companies make a lot of money when you carry a balance and you have to pay that extra interest or interest or you have to pay that late fee. So uh, they're not, uh, I'm not saying they're evil, not that at all, but I'm just, it's, I think people, anybody, uh, it, when you're dealing in a financial transaction, you need to understand the person on the other side of that, how they are making money. <laughs> what, what are their motivations? You just need to have your eyes open for it. So you know, we need good regulation, but we also need people with their eyes open will ask the right questions. And credit cards and checking accounts obviously are essential, useful products to participate in the economy. But if 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 you if you don't use them the way it, they are intended, uh, you'll you'll get trapped into some you know uh, pretty substantial uh, fees and, and high interest pretty quickly. So that's uh, that's really what I try to do to, to, to help, help. And you shouldn't feel guilty. I mean, I think. You know, it, it just is what it is. You, you need a combination of good regulation and people having their eyes open, protecting themselves. If, if, if you do get trapped, if you do carry a credit card balance, if you do overdraft your account, I'm not blaming you. Nobody should blame you. OK, everybody. It's like overeating. right? We all have our weaknesses. We all want to buy on impulse. Sometimes we all, you know, sometimes borrow money that we don't. But. But try to understand what that's costing you when you do it and, and slow down. And I think it, with any impulse uh, action, whether it's eating or whether it's spending, if you just make yourself stop and think about it, right, wait a day uh, or at least. And then the next day, do you really need that? Do you really want it? Is it really worth, you know, putting on your interest at 20%, your credit card at 20% interest or whatever? Then you may not buy it. So uh, those are just little tricks. Again, it's just simple stuff. I think kids in an early age can start learning learning their wisdom. Well, Sheila, you made me feel guilty because I just got back from a trip out west and I didn't eat as healthy as I should have eaten. And, <laughs> and, you, and you just reminded me of that. So thanks for making me feel bad. You're, this is supposed to be a feel you good, know, you know? So there, there is a, I, you know, as I've written these books, you know, because I read, I read other financial education books to, to get ideas for my own and, and see what's out there and where the gaps are. But there are a lot of similarities between diet books and, and especially the financial books written for adults, because they're all, you know, here's how to get rich. I'm sorry. I think most people yeah, want to be financially secure. You're right. I, I don't think they want to be uh, billionaire titans. I don't think they want to have to spend all their time thinking about how to make money. I don't I don't think most there are some people who are like, yeah, that's fine. I, I think that's absolutely fine. But most people don't. They just want to be financially secure. And so I think just 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 writing simple books that have basic principles, basic do's and don'ts, you know, things that are easy to follow and don't try to set them up to think, you know, if they're not saving X percent of their income and having, you know, $2 million by the time they're retiring, retiring or whatever, that there's something wrong with them. I think those kinds of books uh, set people up for failure, just like diet books who, you know, uh, idolize, uh, idealize, uh, various felt uh, weights, uh, that's that's not realistic for most people, just like super wealth isn't realistic for most people. And I think you set them up for failure if you, if you try to give them information to think that they can, can achieve that. You probably don't remember, but our first conversation, we had a good laugh over how this is sneaky teaching to the parents who are actually <laughs> yeah. reading the kids the book, right? So they're reading yes. the kids the book for the benefit and air quotes for the kids, uh, <laughs> but some of them need the lessons on their own too. I'm sure you've probably gotten that feedback from parents who are reading I, your book. I have, I've gotten a lot. I can't tell you, even teachers and I do school reading, so come up to me after and said, I'm so glad. This is what I hear more than anything. I wish somebody had told me this when I was a kid because yes, adults, 
absolutely uh, find it useful as well. And that makes me feel good because it is. That was a motivation, another motivation in writing picture books because parents do read those picture books with their kids. Well, we don't want the third book to feel bad, right? Because we well, only we talked should, about so. it. Right. <laughs> so like, it, that would be like leaving out one of your children, right? Only well, talking of right. two of them about the that's three. Right. So, so go ahead and tell us about the well, last I'll, one. I'll, I'll, I'll try to be a little more, a little faster. So Billy, Billy the Borrowing Bluefoot and Booby was my third book, is my third book. Uh, it's about compounding interest and in how it hurts you when you borrow. So it's about a little booby on the Galapagos Island. I've got a couple other books about the Galapagos who wants to buy an umbrella and goes to a serious lender, Sly Seal, who has a really expensive umbrella and tells them that if he wants to pay double in a month, he can uh, he can go ahead and get it now, but he's going to you know have to pay pay double in a month. Uh, and so uh, they use sardines for money. So of course the booby keeps buying instead of <laughs> he's, he's buying new stuff instead of paying off his debt it doubles and it doubles and it doubles and it doubles and at the end he can't pay his debt and he ends up losing everything so it's the reverse of rock and brock it's how you know compounding will really hurt you if you borrow and then you, and then you don't pay your debt back and you let the interest compound uh continually um and then there's a, a book called shark scam which is also uh in the Galapagos. That's actually about Ponzi schemes. And it came out around the same time as the FTX collapse. It actually did very well. Because again, I think to your point, a lot of a lot of parents uh, and young adults, unfortunately, a lot of young men got trapped with that, have been trapped with this crypto uh, speculation. So, so that's about Ponzi schemes. And then I have a couple other books uh, that take place on uh, Ganymede moon as an ice moon out of Jupiter, uh, one of Jupiter's ice moons. And uh, Princess Persephone is the uh, the heroine. She lives on the ice moon of Ganymede with her father, the king, who's always absent. He's off on business trips, what have you. And so, Princess Persephone loses the castle. Is about her getting a, a you know a sighting salesman comes by, <laughs> gets her to refinance the mortgage to pay for it. And of course, she can't uh, sell it and loses the castle. And the, the uh, my my Ganymede version of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau comes back and comes out in the end and, and saves her. And then the final one is Princess uh, Persephone's Dragon Ride Stand. Uh, I, I love that book. That's that's about, it's got a lot going on. It's about Princess Persephone wants to go to Earth. Her father tells her, no, it's too hot. And so behind his back, she opens up a dragon ride stand. She's selling rides on her pet dragon, Spice. And she works so hard. She's a good little businesswoman. And she raises all this money to buy a spaceship to go to Earth. She sees a TV ad and doesn't think it through otherwise. And of course, doesn't listen to her dad. And uh, she gets to Earth and immediately gets a sunburn. <laughs> it's right back. So she's done all this work for a trip that really was not uh, was not something she wanted. So again, that's about buyer's remorse and and just I think it's important for kids to understand it is real money is not a piece of plastic, right? Money is you, there's work behind money. You have to work to earn money. It takes time, and you want to be really careful about how you spend it. And that resonates. I when I do my classroom readings and I ask kids. Where does money come from? Of course, I go, you know, trees, paper, mulch, whatever. So there's a little like that. But then we don't know where, you know, how do you get money? They understand you've got to work for it. And, and they get, you need to be careful with it. Uh, again, that disconnect between, you know, if somebody's trying to sell them something, you know, a fancy toy or whatever, you know, sneakers, kids want to spend a lot of money on sneakers. Uh, you know, is it really worth it? And understanding you're benefiting, whoever's selling you that expensive sneaker is benefiting. They're getting your money. <laughs> Make sure you're careful about, you know, who you know deal business with, who you're doing business with. And, and uh, it's something you really want before you part with your money because money's hard to earn. 
Wow, I can't believe we're already out of time. That was like oh, no. unbelievable. <laughs> that was great. Thank you so much, <laughs> Sheila. You know what I love about you is that Mark introduced us. Uh, you didn't even hesitate to hop on the phone with me. We hit it off. I feel like we spent 45 minutes to an hour the first conversation <laughs> and probably could have gone two hours more. And what yeah. I just heard is exactly the reason why is because you give back so much to financial literacy. And I'm so thankful that you joined us here today on Total Sense to be a part of it. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for all the things that you're doing too. I know you're you're just as committed as I am, and so uh, what, there are more of us out there trying to provide some, you know, responsible financial education into the hands of young people. We're gonna we're gonna help them a lot later in life. Great, and their parents too. <laughs> Thanks, Sheila. You're the best. Yeah, great. Thanks, Tom. All right. Bye, bye. Bye, bye. I hope you enjoyed our episode of Total Sense. A special thank you goes out to Verso Studios at the Westport Library. Tune in for our next Money Chat.